0: You know, franchisees come in all sizes, from a single-unit operator to a multi-multi-unit operator. In this edition of Franchise U, I had the opportunity to talk with Mike Culp, who is the fourth-largest franchisee in the world. His company, KPP Brands, operates KFCs, Taco Bells, and Arby's. Join me as he talks about the journey that he's taken, as well as some of his key leadership principles.
1: Welcome to the Franchise U Podcast. Where key industry leaders provide education and inspiration. Here's your host, Dr. Kathy Gosser, the director of the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville.
0: So, welcome to another episode of Franchise U. And today, we really have somebody amazing. We have Mike Culp, who is the CEO of KBP Brands, which I'll discuss in just a moment. But welcome, Mike. I'm so glad you're with us today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Kathy.
0: Always, always. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about you, and then we'll go into your company, and then we'll talk a little bit about your leadership philosophy. But starting with you, gosh, you have always been in restaurants. And I read that you started the day after you turned 14. You became a cook at a hamburger restaurant in Lamar, Colorado. And then during college, you worked at Applebee's, but you were lured away in the year 2000 to KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken by franchisee Gary Zanconelli, And Gary was someone who had worked for the first franchisee of KFC, Pete Harmon. So you became a great employee, obviously, for Gary, so great that at the age of 21, you were able to jump in on the opportunity for ownership into the business. And you became the COO. And you were an integral part of the franchise's growth from five restaurants to 64. But that wasn't enough for you. In 2011, you found an investor and you purchased the franchise renaming it KBP Foods. And your company now has grown into KBP Brands, ranked the fourth largest franchisee in the world with over 1,000 restaurants in 31 states, over 17,000 employees, and almost $1.4 billion in sales. And your vision at KBP Brands is quite simple. We strive to be better each and every day so that our every customer leaves happy. Okay, there's a lot to talk about there, Mike. A lot. And you've had just an incredible journey. Can you tell us, let's start maybe in those early days of working at KFC and how that compares to now?
1: Yeah, well, that's a that's a loaded one. So I often refer to my path in business as the least strategic path that anyone that I at least know have ever taken. It was really a combination of, as I think about it today, tremendous opportunities. And for me, um, I was in a situation where, candidly, I didn't have a lot to risk. It was a, a wonderful group of people that I got to know. I was young and knew I wanted to, to do big things. I grew up in a small town. My parents were both teachers. I knew I didn't want to stay where I was, and I knew I didn't want to follow uh, a, a path of finding a everyday, or- ordinary opportunity professionally, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think like a lot of people in the restaurant business, um, you get into it because you need that part-time job, or or maybe it's a, a seasonal thing, or maybe it's just you know a bridge in your mind from where you are to where you want to go. And the next thing you know, the opportunity that's presented to you, which is one of, if you're willing to work hard, it's really limitless, sort of starts to poke its head. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was wildly fortunate to meet both Gary Zankinelli and his father, who were tremendous mentors to me. And... Really, when I think back on so many of the things that mattered to me in business today, and in particular in the restaurant space, so many of those came both from Harmon Management as well as the the thought processes and leadership that I learned from those two guys. Mm-hmm. I think you you asked the question about how the business compares then to today. Mm-hmm. It was a lot easier then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for a lot of reasons, right? In many ways, harder physically, I was working you know, 10, 15-hour days and days off were rare. And when you're a small franchise, you're you're the accounting manager, you're the HR manager, you're the marketing manager, and you're the person in charge of making sure dollars and cents turn into bottom line profit. It's a very complicated and intense world, but just our industry in general has become so much more complicated in the past 10 or 15 years, Mm -hmm. not to mention what scale has done to just the complications of running the business that was much smaller. So gosh, I could go on for two hours about how different it was then, but at its core, it's still about the same very simple things, taking care of people, you know, hot food, served fast with a friendly smile and making sure if you mess up, you make it right. That part hasn't changed.
0: That's true. That is true. And I know that you care a lot about taking care of people. and We're going to talk about that in just a bit, but that's definitely the fabric of who you are. And I've definitely seen that. But why did you decide to buy into the restaurants versus just keep running them? Why become a franchisee?
1: It, it was a combination of a couple of things. I think that by the time Gary and I made the decision that he was going to move on and, and he actually ended up starting his own restaurant concept and pursuing a lifelong dream and we were going to buy the business from him and continue to run it. Um I think it was a, co- a combination of maybe one or two primary things. The first one was we'd had some real success with buying restaurants that had underperformed. Mm-hmm. And while we hadn't completely built out the formula for how we would fix them yet, it was probably hard work and 20%, um, you know, the movie and the script and the playbook that we use today, but we'd seen real success in doing that. And what really struck me was the number of times that when we uh, looked at potential opportunities, how similar they were to one another. And what became then in my mind a pretty clear playbook that I felt like could be replicated multiple times over over and over again to, to see the successes that we'd seen in the first 64 So I think just the pure business plan side of it was pretty simple. As you know, Yum at the time was in the process of divesting of restaurants. They were moving toward an asset-like model. And we had done a pretty good job positioning ourselves, building good relationships, um, doing what we said, operating good restaurants, and felt like we'd have an opportunity to continue to grow through those, as well as a hub-and-spoke approach with other franchisees in the system that didn't maybe necessarily have clear succession plans. And or were just tired of running a business that they'd run for a really long time and wanted to bring their fruits to, to fruition. But, but I think the second part of it was when we had 39 restaurants, we made for the first time our first big hires. We hired Matt Hansen, who I know you know. Yeah. And I think you might have known Tony Maselli, who was sort of the, the counterpart to Matt. Those guys both came in with a lot of operating experience. Um, they were clear industry veterans with a ton of capability, whole different level of capability than we'd ever had inside of our company. And we made the the choice at the time to make them partners. It was a big part of the reason why they were leaving where they were coming to much smaller opportunities with us. And we did that for a couple of reasons. I think the, the one that we don't broadcast as often was probably just the fear of somebody else being at a distance operating what was the business that we had built in a way that didn't treat them like an owner. Mm. And we always believed that you know, if you got handed a stack of black chips at the casino, you behaved a little bit different than if you went and cashed your money in for a stack of black chips. True, we just never really done anything with it, and so watching what we were able to do with those two guys in provide them a career opportunity that gave us the confidence we could continue to scale, and just seeing what bringing that level of of capability into our business did for our future growth potential really excited us parallel to the, the opportunity that I'd mentioned that we saw from a business standpoint, just given the history that we'd had with acquisition.
0: Wow. And you definitely talk about growth and really leveraging that. Before we get into that, I'd really like to know what motivates you personally, Mike, to grow your business?
1: That, that one's probably the easiest question you'll ask me today. So it's, it's two things. One, which is I just have a fundamental belief that you're either growing or dying. I don't believe that being stagnant, in particular in this industry, where it's so competitive for every good manager, for every good area coach, for every good COO, for everyone in this industry, it's a wildly competitive landscape for talent. And I've just never sat in front of a really talented person who wants to stay doing what they're doing, right? True. They don't all want to do it for the same reasons, and they don't all have the same aspirations in terms of what something next means. But if I think of the thousands of people that I've interviewed almost every single case is them looking for something that's missing in terms of either personal upside, professional upside, or, or uh, financial upside that they don't have where they are. Super rare that I sit with someone and they say, gosh, I've got all the runway. They're developing me you know, day in and day out. I'm making a ton of money and all I have to do is these things to make more. And I love it how this world impacts what happens to me outside of work. They wouldn't be sitting there if they answered the question that way, right? right. So I was just always fearful that the people inside of our business, our top talent, were going to sit in someone else's office mm-hmm. and wanted to make sure that they sat in ours first. Right? We, we often described it in a funny way internally, which was to say, if you've got a really good seed, which is the person, and you know, average soil or, or bad soil, you don't end up with the same outcome as if you have a really good seed and really good soil. True. And so our goal always was to say, if we've got this good seed, we have to work really hard to be good soil. And for me, growth was fundamental to that. The follow-on to that is what growth does for us. And really, ultimately, that all comes back to you know, what we really look at as the purpose in this business, which is to create life-changing outcomes for people. If we're not growing taking that person who never thought they'd have an opportunity for ownership or an opportunity to run more restaurants or have those things happen with the pace that we've been able to create for people, it doesn't happen. And Mm so you know, I think each time everyone across our organization goes and sits with that next talented person, whether it's an existing employee or someone they're looking to bring into the business, they need that same platform for growth. And then they need to be able to tell the story about why you'd want to grow and what that means for you and your family. So the one-liner answer is, Kathy, like, it's all about getting to watch what those outcomes have done for the people in this business that I really care about. Mm-hmm. It remains the number one focus that I have and, and will always be my primary motivator. The growth to me is just a necessary evil to keep that reoccurring and, and keep people excited about being here as opposed to thinking about being somewhere else.
0: Gotcha. Thank you for sharing that. That, that actually is pretty fascinating to me. And you mentioned family. And when I look at how hard you've worked and I've watched you over the years, Mike, and it's just incredible, how do you balance it all with your family? You have three children, a a wonderful wife. How do you balance that?
1: It's funny. I was not nearly as good at it years ago as I am today, which sounds um, maybe a bit odd. The only reason it's easier for me today than it used to be is because I just have such an amazing group of people around me. I mean, I probably spend as much time... Just when I'm thinking about what I'm going to do to add value to this leadership team as I do anything else, because I have such great people around me. I've got in every functional role that's a leader across this business, those individuals bring more experience and more capability than I do to whatever they're working on. And my job, I think, is just to keep that team thinking about itself as the primary team. right? I think one of the biggest challenges we've faced as we've grown And we've gotten now, you know, 20 people or 30 people in a department, not two people in a department is when I say, Hey, Kathy, tell me how your team is doing. People tend to think down the org chart about their team. And one of, I think my primary goals is to keep them thinking about our team as the first team, right? The HR leader, the the legal leader, the finance leader, the M and a leader, the ops leaders, the brand presidents, thinking about that group and their alignment and our loyalty. And accountability to one another being the primary responsibilities that they hold to the organization, it's all much easier, though, when you look around that table and say, "I could leave for forty five days and this thing's going to keep clicking because you've got such wonderful people." So to me, the short version is is that is is hire great people?" The second part of it is, I think you you know and I'm sure a lot of people face this, but you just come to a point in your life where you commit yourself to saying no to things that just don't matter. Mm-hmm. My biggest issue over the years was. I was very busy with all the stuff that mattered, and I was even busier with all the things that I didn't have to be doing. Right, every conference, every meeting that wasn't that important, every charity event, every everything I wanted to be there to do my part in, and I just had to learn you can't be good at home, especially when you've got kids my age. I've got two kids that are one one that's about to be a teenager, one that's smack dab in the middle of teenage years, and then I've got one that's grown. Um, they're critical years to be around for those individuals. So I think it's a personal commitment as much as anything.
0: Gosh, you said so much in that. And two of the things really stuck out. The one is about your team and your cross-functional team. So all of your leaders working together in a collaboration class I teach. That's something we talk about, and making sure the priorities remain the same versus having competing priorities. So that is a real talent. And then saying, no, oh my gosh, if I could ever learn that. So one day I'll have to get some extra that's coaching. To you, go know also, now. you
1: know what else? You know what you also learned, Kathy, is when you start to say no, people ask you less, and so do those around you. Right? My my administrative assistant, who's like my right hand, she yeah. knows to say no now more than she used to. And you know, you you just train others if you say it yourself, right? That's
0: great. That's great. But I know you still take time for tons of things. And thanks for taking time for this one. But you know, Mike, if I step back and look at the world of franchising, you are the largest franchisees in the world. I mean, that's crazy. When you pull up the list, there you are. So it's just amazing. What is your strategy for growth? Like when you think about what, where do you decide to grow and how you grow, what's the strategy there?
1: Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, for for basically 20 years, we we grew pretty steadily. I mean, mm-hmm. every year we grew. We've done 90 acquisitions since 2011. Wow. Um, and, and, and candidly, um, I, I, I listen to people talk about this all the time. I read books about this. We became a little bit um lazy as it related to our strategies for growth, and it it didn't really show up that way um until all of a sudden the macroeconomic climate shut growth as we knew it down. We were the recipient of phone calls on almost every transaction we were doing, not always only us, but we weren't out having to work hard to find what was next for us in growth. and then the combination of COVID and then inflation and then banking environment all back to back to back have really slowed growth in the QSR space down. A year ago, it was non-existent. It's starting back now. But I think it, 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 it told us that we were going to have to think a little bit different about how we were going to grow our business. Did we need to shift to more of an organic approach as, to, as opposed to M and A? Did we need to look outside of our industry? The, the one thing I know is we have to continue to grow this business both for all the reasons I've already mentioned, as well as to get into stakeholder and expectations of third-party partners, et cetera, that we have involved in the business today. I think we're in the process of beginning to try to disrupt our past thinking to get ourselves onto a track of what's next. We know we've got skill sets that don't apply to just roast beef or chicken or tacos, right? They apply to leading people, uh, implementing systems and tools and processes, you know, routines and scoreboards and incentivization plans that connect with all of those across multi-unit businesses. Um, and that's, there's a lot of those, right? Fitness, there's, there's health and beauty and wellness. There's uh, oil changes, there's car washes, there's list goes on for days that look Correct. and feel similar to what we do. They just don't serve food at the end of the day. So, you know, we're, we're trying to do two things. One, which is continue to be curious and trust in that our capabilities are applicable to other spaces But also stay really disciplined about making sure that we aren't growing for growth's sake. I've said many, many times how many restaurants we own and what our revenue is, I've never cared about, right? Mm -hmm. What I care about is growth that is disciplined and ultimately helps to add value all across the food chain for us, right? So outside the industry is probably a space we're spending as much time on as we ever have. And we're continuing to look at do we need a fourth or a fifth brand in our portfolio? just so that we can stay as disciplined as we've been historically, knowing that two, five, seven restaurants doesn't add as much value as it used to when we were much smaller.
0: Mm -hmm. Makes sense. And I know that your franchisee, you have obviously worked within this franchise model for so many years. What are the advantages of being a franchisee versus opening up your own shop?
1: So a, a few of them, from my perspective, that jump immediately out at me, which are It's not the case for all, but the case for our businesses, the ones that we're in, they tend to be legacy state brands, right? Mm -hmm. These are brands that have been around for 50, 60, 70 years. They've seen recession, they've seen inflation, they've seen competition, they've seen, you name it, right? And so I think as a primary starting place to get into a brand that's not franchised, that has the proven track record, the proven business case of that that are in franchises is almost impossible. So- there's a risk profile element from my perspective in, in, as it relates to being in a franchise versus doing your own thing. I think the second one is, you know, when I think about what we have to do really, really well to be successful, it's about a tenth of the things that a brand owner has to think about, right? We don't have to think about what color of red we want to put on the next building or right. what new uniform needs to look like or what happens when, you know, there's a food safety outbreak in, some country, gosh knows where that I gotta be on CNN talking about tonight. Mm-hmm. Uh, we get to focus on hiring great people and running great restaurants. And at least from my perspective, one of the benefits of being able to do that is it's, it's easier to focus. And for, for me, I think focus is probably the most important thing you can bring to a large scaling organization. So I think the fact that you're really only focused on a sliver of the industry, although it's getting more complicated today, right? Um, you know, the, the, the complexity there associated with the complexities that brands have to think about is just in different arenas. And I think the brands that, that I really respect, how they figure this out is how they're great operators of restaurants and great franchisors. Mm-hmm. There's not very many of them, right? When you think about the great operators of restaurants, you the ones that jump out immediately at you aren't typically the largest franchises in the country, but there are some who can do both well. And I just, with all we have on our plates daily, I'm thankful that the, there's not 15 or 20 other things we're focused on with, with most days.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, sometimes my students, we talk about franchising, they always feel that, well, if I become a franchisee, I lose control and I won't be able to be creative or entrepreneurial-like. What do you think about that statement?
1: Well, I think, first of all, there's a lack of knowledge, generally speaking, about what franchises really are, right? I mean, whether I talk to friends or I'm at a bank conference or I'm talking to your students, I think most people don't really understand where that bright white line exists and where it turns to gray and what you actually get to do. And, you know, we'll meet with investors who that's their very first question. Like, do you guys control pricing? You know, yes, we do. Do you control, right? Like th- there's a lot of that. I think that there's areas where there's not as much freedom, but For the most part, those make a lot of sense, Kathy. I mean, you don't want a brand that's got totally different food offerings across multiple restaurants. You don't want a brand that's got totally different signage, et cetera. And and what I've learned about the creativity side of this is that if you operate good restaurants, you've got an open door to build a great relationship with your franchisor. And if you build a great relationship with your franchisor, even the things you're not supposed to influence, you can have a tremendous amount of leeway to influence. The ones that I think get in trouble are the ones who forget that the start for that is to operate good restaurants. And and then from there, they try to influence or try to get creative. And that's where things get a little sideways. But I I think generally, there's a lot more flexibility than most people think there might be. And trust me, there's plenty of space to be creative. The way we decide to apply that is on culture, right? We look at it and say, the best operators of restaurants in the country are the ones who do pretty redundant things really consistently without blips, and you know exactly what to expect from them. That's right. That's not the sexiest job, right? It's just, it's it's, it's sort of, if you drew that up and didn't tell you what industry it was and said, would you like to join this? I think people probably be like, that doesn't sound very exciting, right? Yeah. So I think where we get really creative is what do we layer on top of that? and How do we insert our company's name into this equation under these great brands and say, how can we create a phenomenal employment experience or phenomenal development opportunity, or et cetera, et cetera? So, I think there's plenty of area for creativity. If you're a graphic designer and you want to build, you know, the next building, you're an architect or an engineer. There's probably not as much creativity, but for us, those are the areas that mean the least in terms of you know impact to the to the people we care about.
0: Great way to explain that. Thank you so much for that. And you know, it's no secret you have a great relationship with your franchisors because obviously you are a growth minded franchisee who wants to run great operations and that's important. So when you think about the franchisor, what are some of the top expectations you have of support that you would yep. receive from them?
1: So let me step back just a tiny bit from a support question. The first things we always look at when we evaluate the next franchise we want to be in are the same, which are what's the track record of, um, of their ownership. So if they are, publicly traded, very different evaluation than if they're privately held. And part of the reason that we start there is because I believe that all things you're able to do that people love to be a part of start with a foundation that's firm financially. When that breaks, when that changes, everything else becomes more complicated, right? When you see a business that makes poor decisions with g or overhead, the implication that that has on everyone involved in the, the organization are front and center and really challenging to overcome as an example. So we start with who is ownership? How strong is ownership? We then look at the next primary thing is not the current leader. I think you probably know, um, I don't know if, what number of president I'm on at each brand that we're in, but the way I've always looked at this is if you're really good, you're going to go somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if you're really bad, you're going to go somewhere. The only constant is those leaders are going somewhere. Right? So I think about the world through the lens of, what track record does this organization have of hiring great talent to lead these businesses? There's been times where the current president is really good, but the last 3 were uh eh, and they don't necessarily have the same reputation for world-class leadership in the most important jobs providing that to the franchise communities that are underneath them. So that's the second piece that we look for. I think the most important one that's much more tactical is their flexibility and adaptability. Mm. Do they listen enough to know what the needs of the community are in today's environment, which is very different than two years ago's environment, which is very different than five years ago's environment. And are they adapting and flexing their priorities, their accountabilities, their expectations to fit the needs of the franchisee? There is a very natural separation of of most important things that occur between, for example, Yum as a publicly traded franchisee, who has quarterly earnings pressures and annual earnings pressures and outside investors and whomever, their priorities have to be different at times from the franchisee who has very different perspective on the world. And I think those who build that bridge the best and keep themselves as aligned as possible with what the most important things are and how they run their businesses accordingly to accomplish those are providing the best support across franchising. So to me, it's those things we evaluate and those things that we push on when we feel like they're out of balance some way that provide either better or changes in the support structure that we may be seeing as, as part of the partnership.
0: That is a unique way of looking at leadership because I've often wondered how it must feel from a franchisee's perspective when you see the leadership changing frequently. And that is an interesting perspective. So if we get a little bit more micro on the support level, I know that for many years, I would hear franchisees say, well, that's what my royalties pay for. Can you tell me in your words, what you think royalties pay for? (laughs)
1: Let's see who's going to hear this. I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, So honestly, I think that, you know, their jobs, um, I kind of bucket it, right? You've got the brand, Mm -hmm. right? Upholding a strong brand, telling a strong brand story, doing the homework and research to make sure that it's on par with the changing consumer base, et cetera. So that's everything from assets to marketing to PR to everything that's outward facing that that business has. I think they've got to be good at. That's the, that's a kind of a foundational one. I think the second one is as you, as you think about it a little bit more granularly, I think a franchisor is being hired to provide thought leadership, right? So. What should we be doing to make our kitchens more efficient? What should we be doing to make our training more effective? What should we be doing to ensure that this business isn't becoming stagnant? What technology investments should we be testing? Where should we be thinking about using AI? Broadly thought leadership, aside the the way the brand positions itself, is to me a really important category. And then the third one, which often becomes the most important, as you know, from your past, would probably be, what's the actual offer to the consumer? It's the (laughs) what's that product calendar look like? What does the product pipeline look like? How are we innovating and keeping ourselves relevant? How are we developing products that um, are going to give us the ability to provide a value offering to the consumer? Like the how do you go to market stuff that's not just how does the building look and what's the color of red or blue or green on your building, but the actual activation of those things in the marketplace is another area that I look to them for for substantial support. I think the last one would be maybe that they protect the brand. Mm-hmm. Right, so there's brands out there that you could point to that are dead today because they had situations that were not addressed with underoperated restaurants. Maybe it was, um, you know, incapable scenarios. Maybe it was just franchisees that they needed to move on from. But facilitating the who becomes the franchise base in any brand, if I were a franchisor, would be the single most important thing I would care about. Who are the people actually doing this? is probably the most important decision a franchisor makes. So I think protecting that and ensuring that you're working to improve that is something that the good franchisees inside those businesses I know appreciate.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks for answering that question. The last question about working with a franchisor I want to ask is, how do you manage conflict with your franchisor? I mean, you serve on a lot of the advisory councils, and you definitely have a lot of influence, but how do you manage that conflict? Because it, it
1: is there. It sounds really simple, Kathy, but there's one thing I've always believed, which is if you have a real relationship with someone, conflict is pretty easy. Mm. I think where people get themselves in trouble with franchisors is if they try to be extremely adversarial or provide tons of pushback and and rub, but they don't actually have a relationship with the person that they're sitting across from the table with when that occurs. I think that combined with how you go about it is 90% of the battle, right? Um, doing things that need to be done one-on-one instead of in group settings where you're using the group's influence to get something pushed across that's your own agenda, um, et cetera. But to me, if I think back on the last, I don't know, six people who've run the, the KFC business or the last couple in, in Taco Bell or the last two at Arby's, I felt like there was a sincere relationship with those people. I think there was some that we got along great and some that we got along okay. Some that I would probably like to go have a beer with and others that maybe that wasn't the case, mm-hmm. but we had a real relationship, one that we could tell each other things and we weren't going to get upset about it. And I think we had a mutual respect for the, for the win as it related to when do I come to you with something and is it important? But all based in that foundation of a, of a sincere relationship. So to me, I think, you know, going and spending the time, which trust me is a huge time commitment. Right, to build relationships with teams that are moving and, and changing every few years, especially when you think about supply chain and distribution and agencies. And I mean, there's a lot of people and it takes a lot of time, but I think it's very worth every penny of, of money you spend not doing it and every ounce of time you spend on doing it. Because ultimately, if you can build that bridge to like we both want the same thing, how do we go about it? And it's done in a non-controversial way. I think it just it creates pace just like the old book that that was written. It was called Speed of Trust, right? Mm-hmm. Everything gets done faster when you've got trust. Well, you can't have trust if you don't have a relationship. So to me, it's just that simple. It starts there.
0: And you know, it's so funny, Mike, because I always tell my students that, hey, it's all about the relationship and we work hard on understanding how you build those. because sometimes I think they think I'm crazy. So to hear you confirm it, thank you for that. I promise I didn't yeah. even prompt that, did I?
1: Yeah, no, I, you didn't. You did. I promise. I, it's funny. I actually... There's a new there's a new president at KFC right now, and I don't know exactly how this happened, but the long story short on this is that some information got back to him that was probably some version of a piece of the truth and some two or three versions of it that weren't the truth before I ever even met him, really met him. I had met him mm-hmm. um, and got to know him that were, if I would have heard someone say what he thinks I said about him, I, I would have been on my heels and pretty pretty cautious. And it took a li- it's still, I'm still working hard to build the same relationship with him that I've had with a few others, just because there was a start of a small blip in that trust before we ever even knew each other. Right. And just watching the pace with which I look at the last four or five people in that job versus this one. Um, it sends a flag up on how important making sure that trust is built on the front side and how hard and constant you have to work to keep it is. And because if you don't have it, you can just see it slow things down. Right. So. And we're in a really good place. There's, I'm not suggesting we aren't. I just, it was, it caused me to pause when I, for the first time ever, had to overcome the first step being, can I trust, as opposed to working from day one in a place of, oh, I can trust. And it just, it really mattered.
0: Those kind of things do matter. Well, let's talk a little bit about your leadership and KBV brands. And I want to start with a quote on your website. This is from you. We learned early on that to attract top industry talent to our organization, we would have to provide significant growth opportunities for our people. Our unwavering focus on how we can continue to deliver development to our people personally, professionally, and financially has become part of every decision we make. Can you share what that means to you, Mike?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's funny. That's one of the things I did say. There's a lot of things with quotes on them that I'm not sure I ever did. But, you know, if I I went deep on, you know, our COO, who's been with us for fifteen or sixteen years, versus the person in the next office over—very, very different things that drive them, very different uh, priorities in life, very different stages in life, um, etc. Right? List goes on. While everybody's very different, what's the same about everybody is something makes them tick. And what I've learned is that it's—it's it's kind of the same thing I just said about the franchisor. If you take the time to really get to know people, if you're vulnerable enough, if you're authentic, if you're completely transparent with them and build a a relationship that builds that trust early on, they let you into exactly what they care about. And I think if you're doing the things that we do to, to attract the best talent we can find, we hire the best recruiter I know in the United States of America. We have the best assessment firm that helps us make sure we don't make mistakes on these people and understand their developmental opportunities, their core competencies, their watchouts, all of that on the way in the door. We spend a lot of energy to get the right person at the table. And then it means nothing if you don't go figure out what makes them tick and work hard to try to help them accomplish that. And, and so from my perspective, whether you're at a manager level and you're talking about bringing in a clerical individual into the business or an hourly team member in a restaurant, none of those rules change at all right? Our best general managers and restaurants are the ones that get referred to as like, you know, she's kind of like a mom, right? Or he's kind of like a father figure. And it's because they take care of people, get to know what they need and help them accomplish what's next for them. So for us, I think the person that comes in and is really driven financially, we work hard to try to find ways to advance that as fast as possible. For the one who wants to work in an area that's going to challenge them and they've never been in before or grow them into a span of control that's much larger than before, like we go to work hard on building an individual development plan for those people that help them get there. Mm. And then there's people that honestly need something from you that's personal before they need the other two. They need you to teach them how they can leave at six o'clock if they want to go to the lake on a Thursday night instead of stay on Friday, depending on what's most important, where you're at, age and stage, et cetera.
0: Excellent. Thank you. And then your core values, they're different from so many that I've seen before. Their loyalty value, decisiveness, and team. Maybe you could talk about one of those.
1: Yeah. So it's funny. We have a bunch of things underneath each one of those that we talk about, but I think that the loyalty piece is an interesting one. We don't mean that in the sense that you, you can never go work anywhere else. And if you're ever having a negative thought, then you're thrown out the door. And if I asked you to go throw someone in the river, you'd say yes. So when you think about the scale of our business today, right? we're in 60 major DMAs, over 30 states, and we've got a lot of leaders that have never spent time around Our leadership team, the core group that came up and sort of built the value and try hard to create a certain culture. What loyalty really means to us is challenging people to lead from anywhere, Mm -hmm. right? It's loyalty to us looks like when a team member helps another team member make the right decision, when Mm -hmm. an area coach in North Carolina that we've never met stands up and shows integrity in a tough spot, all kinds of different versions of you can lead from anywhere. And really, what we want you to do. Is support us doing the right thing as an organization? So the the loyalty sentiment that's used is really more about engaging people to say, I don't care what your title is, and I don't care where you work. Being well to this business may look different from time to time, but what it ultimately means is is helping us create a place that everybody wants to come to work, and almost everybody knows what that looks like. Um, you know, on the the reason we talk about team so much is that we have this we have this philosophy of. If we're not winning together, we're not winning. And it really comes from a a value that we created a long time ago, which said that we make decisions first for the company, then for the team, then for the individual with the mindset that if the organization's not succeeding and we're succeeding at the individual level, we've got a longer term, midterm, major problem, right? Mm -hmm. But we can't stop at saying decisions that benefit the business are always good. We have to go a layer deeper to say, how do they benefit the teams that'll be impacted? And then ultimately the individuals as part of that team, all again, through the lens of, are we doing the right thing? It doesn't mean they're always going to be perfect for everybody involved, but it's the idea that all of us winning together instead of us winning individually or as a group or as a region or as a you know, brand is, is where we're focused. We're truly focused on how do we all collectively win from the decisions that we make. And then you know, the other one you mentioned that I'll just say something about quickly is decisiveness. I think If there's one thing that I've learned, it's larger organizations tend to revert to a mean really quickly, Mm -hmm. right? What have we always done? How have we always done it? What's the path that we can actually accomplish this on? Not the one that we would do if we had 10 restaurants. And we have this saying that we use a ton called fight for great, which is, how do we think about the business the same way when we had today that we did when we had 30 restaurants? How do we not let the top 20 get recognized and the bottom 20 get told they're the bottom 20 and forget about the middle 60, Mm -hmm. right? How do we just not ever fall into a place of either how we're communicating, acting, achieving is mediocre as opposed to the way we would have approached it with 20, 30, 40 restaurants. And I think the decisiveness piece of that means you've got to push decision-making way down in the organization, right? You've got to empower people to make mistakes and learn from them. And you've got to also encourage creativity across the business to make sure you're constantly learning from what the newest ideas from everybody in all positions look like so that you continue to keep people excited, but also evolve the business such that you don't become stagnant in your thinking. So decision-making and decisiveness as we've scaled like we have and gotten out as as far and wide as we have is probably one of the most important things to success of our business.
0: And I'll tell you, you walk the talk on that because if I think of attributes to describe Mike Culp, that one hits way at the top. (laughs) <laughs> as, as well as, why I have seen you in decision-making mode, but also the other thing I've seen you do is take care of your team. Just there's so many examples of that. And one is you even have a nonprofit called KPB Cares that's all about the team. Would you please talk about your culture?
1: Yeah. So I'll start with Cares because I think it's a good example of a lot of the things that we do. KPB Cares started, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, I doubt it. We were in a urban restaurant, tough tough area, tough neighborhood in like December. It was freezing cold outside and I, we were visiting the store. Mm-hmm. And there was a group of people hanging out in the corner of the restaurant, like two adults and two or three kids. And But they didn't have any food. There was no cups. There was nothing. And I asked the manager, who are those people? And he said, oh, that's so-and-so. He works for me and that's his wife and his children. They don't have heat. So when it gets really cold, if, even when he's not working, we let him come up. It was over Christmas break or something. We let them come up and hang out in the restaurant so that they're not cold. And it hit me like a ton of bricks that this is another one of those scalability issues. You know, when we were small, someone picked the phone up, called me, call Gary, call whoever and say, hey, I'm in a really tough spot. Can I borrow $1,100 because my so-and-so just passed away and I need to be able to help with a funeral? And we'd say, sure. And we know that wasn't really a loan. It was a gift, Mm -hmm. right? And at the end of the day, we did a lot of that stuff. But when you're in all of a sudden six or eight or 10 states or 12 states or whatever we were at the time, it hit me like a box of rocks that you just don't know about that. And by the way, the area coach isn't going to know you well enough to have the courage to pick the phone up and ask that question either. And, And then, as you know, also, Kathy, as you get larger, there's other things like liability and how do you treat everybody equally and all of that stuff that someone else is chirping in your ear on over here. And so we just said, why do we need to do it that way? Why can't we create a formal structure? We decided we wanted it funded by our employees so you can donate $1. And then we have a formal board that's independent from KBP. We have an allocation committee that's anonymous and a really clear purview on what we'll give to and what we won't give to. And you know that's become a really big deal. The average grant's pretty small, from year to year, anywhere from a thousand to two thousand dollars on average, and we'll, you know, we'll give out. I don't know how much total we've done since we've started it—millions and millions and millions of dollars to people that are being impacted by the dollars given to them by a stranger. And in many cases, talk about life-changing outcomes. I mean, someone's house burns down, and you save them in a matter of forty-eight hours. There's there's huge huge impacts to people's lives. Um, I, I think it ladders more so when I talk about our culture to this, you know, do, do we really care about the people that we work with? Do we work hard enough to hire people around us that we can care about, right? That, that are the type of people we want to care about. And do we work hard interviewing, letting the candidates that we talk to interview us as much as we interview them to ensure there's a good fit is the starting place. I think, you know, from there, um, I would say our culture is competitive, but it's also very compassionate, right? It's it's kind of what I talked about earlier when I said, when I think about the things that I expect out of the people in this business, I expect them to have their eyes and ears open for areas that they can help impact people. I expect them that if they know someone needs help with something, that they're going to be there to, to, to lend a hand. All the obvious things you expect from your team, otherwise, you know, that they're, you know, courage, courageous enough to challenge the status quo and and professional when they represent the organization and able to wear your T-shirt proudly, all of the the normal things. But I think the, the 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 most unique parts of our culture are the upside down org chart. Your job is those beneath you and those next to you, not those above you, as a starting point. And then from there, it's what I mentioned to you earlier, which is you know you got to have fun in this industry. It's not the most you know uh, sexy or or attractive business for people all the time, but creating fun, whether that's in our corporate office with fun events that we do and engaging families in it or whether it's the way we celebrate you know our people every year or other things just finding a way to to really get people to want to be here and not have to is it's probably easier than you think you just have to make it a focus and go do it
0: and you do have a lot of fun first of all thanks for sharing that story and you know that thousand to 2000 dollars it could mean the world to so many people so that's pretty incredible I think that that organization has inspired KFC Corporate to do something similar years ago. So you are definitely quite the role model. But you also are big on recognition. And it's not just, you do have equity partners, you do provide the monetary incentive, but you also do other things. Like you mentioned the trip and you have the circle of excellence. Do you want to talk about that for a moment?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sure. So. I'll have to send you a picture. We moved into a new uh, headquarters building in March, and we built, we used to have a wall that had everyone's names on it. We yeah. transferred it over to this really cool, it, it looks like the rings of a tree and they're all different heights and it's really big. It's probably 10 feet wide and it hangs on our wall now. But what Circle of Excellence is, is a. it's an award that we give out impromptu. We might give 20 a year, we might give five, we might give a hundred depending on circumstances. But We give it to people, not based in, you know, a scorecard or the outcomes on the financial statement, et cetera, but people who have done something extraordinary that we believe represents who we are as an organization and also believe is a building block for what has made KVP what it is. So the idea of this circle continuing to grow are that the names that go on there stay on there forever as a reminder of who helped us get where we are. And it's really aimed at people who do things that are selfless. That show courage in the face of challenge. Things that aren't, you know, food cost, labor cost, sales growth, and speed of service, right? Uh, and I don't know how many people we have on there now, a ton. But it's fun looking back on them and just, you know, it would for me when I walk by that thing. What it represents is it's a constant reminder, first of all, of how many people it takes you to get to a place of having some success. It's a lot, right? it, but more importantly, all of the individual stories that you're reminded of when you see somebody's name and what they did to impact the business and it's kind of like the one place you can go no matter whether you're having a bad day or a good one and get a reminder of how much good stuff's gone on over the course of 20 years in your business.
0: Well, I will tell you, I am one of those lucky recipients and it still is very heartwarming to me when I remember that day. It was near my retirement, but I remember that day um, when you brought that. And I remember what you said to me, because this just shows folks how, you are a big softy, but you also are hilarious when you said, and if you're really not going to wear that pin I'm giving you, can you give it back? Because it's kind of expensive.
1: What? Do you remember that? Dude, yeah, I do. I used to tell that to people like, you know, the ones in our business wear them. Right? I wear it. But it's, got our, <laughs> but it's got our business name on it. So yeah. sometimes a little when you give it to someone that's outside the business, So I'm always like, hey, if you'd rather me send you a you know, gift card, just give me a scream. I'm happy to fire it across.
0: No, I'd much rather have that. I wear that. It's fun because people will ask me about it. And yeah. so it's a really nice conversation starter. So you do definitely walk the talk on all of that. Just a couple of last questions. Um, sure. What advice would you give for anyone who wanted to start onto this path of becoming a franchisee?
1: It's a great question, Kathy. So I'll tell you the way I used to answer this question, which was, I used to say, the first thing you need to do is surround yourself with a group of really smart people to help you immediately. And don't be shy to ask the people that you never thought would say yes my experiences they never say no. Um, and that's truly been the case for me. I think this business has changed a lot in the past 15 or 20 years. And I think today, people have to think more practically about the realities of getting into and owning franchises than they did when I got in. When I got in, I got a loan with almost no value to my name and a prayer that I was going to pay it back because the guy that gave me the loan trusted the person who asked him to give me the loan. That's just not the way the world works today, right? When I got into this business, I think to build a new restaurant was probably 40% of what it costs today. List goes on. So I think when I say think more practically about it, I think you have to really establish a game plan for where's my capital going to come from? And where you need the help now is to make sure that your pro forma and your thought process isn't missing something. Mm -hmm. You then got to think through... Where's my experience and capability going to come from? And list goes on. That's, I think it's just a lot more, uh, it's a lot more difficult to just go out, you know, sign a deal, go build a massage NB and, and then build two and then build three and then build four for a lot of macroeconomic reasons. And so I just think people need to be a lot more planful than they used to be. The good news is, in particular in food, but in franchising in general is still a very attractive place for capital. I don't care if you're a bank, if you're an individual investor, if you're an institutional investor, the risk-adjusted returns in these businesses are very good. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not trying to discourage anyone to say it's difficult and don't do it. I'm suggesting do your homework. And I'm also suggesting the ability to do it's there. I just think you have to be a little more methodical than, for sure than I was. <laughs> That's for sure.
0: Yeah, times have changed. Thanks for that as well. So, you know, Mike, you've truly had quite a career and I did some reading on you too. Even though I've known you forever, I thought, oh, I've got to do some reading about him. And I read that they asked you about a succession plan and here's how you responded. What would I do all day? And so when you think about that, I just love that line. But when you think about that, what are you most proud of over your career so far?
1: Oh, oh, definitely what I said to you earlier, which is, You look at the number of people that we have taken in this business that, you know, I could give you a hundred stories of the ones that went from never thought they'd be a manager to to were making six figures quickly that are awesome stories, right? But the ones that for me were the most meaningful were the ones closest to me. The people who, you know, had been somewhere for 20 or 25 years, had a good job we brought them in we helped them get into their first piece of equity with us and those individuals are multimillionaires today right mm-hmm. and it's not the multimillionaire part that i'm probably the most proud of it's the fact that our organization was able to provide an opportunity that someone never thought they would have and then the second part of it is is what they've done with that right the way that those individuals have taken both that opportunity and then done the same thing for someone else and then that person's done it for someone else and watching it grow exponentially But also the way that they've behaved as they've become very successful financially and grown up in our business and seeing just the continued loyalty of those individuals that have been in those seats for so long, you know, the types of people they are, the way they spend their money that they've made, the way that they lean on each other for help. I would tell you if you did a random survey, I think of our top 40 people and asked them to each name three of their best friends, I'd be blown away if those other individuals around them weren't on that list, right? They've just done a great job with managing a business that's gotten a lot more complex, could have had a lot more drama, seen a lot more ups and downs in the last few years than we ever thought we'd see, ever. And in just the way that they go about managing their lives and their business, it's an absolute pleasure to be a part of that team.
0: That's great. And one last question for you. Is there anything you wish you had known all those years ago before you started franchising?
1: (laughs) You know, it's funny. um, I've never been someone that spends a bunch of time thinking about the things we did wrong or whatever. It's not because I'm, you know, some motivational speaker that says that for these reasons. I've just never done it. Now, there's times where I've also felt like I wasn't as introspective as I could be. And that if had I been a little more introspective, I might not have been such a slow learning curve. But when I look at our business today and I think about the things that we do uniquely, almost all of them come from a failure, right? Like the reason why we brought these people in and needed them to be equity partners was because of what happened when we did that once and we didn't have that and how that affected us. You know, when we look at The way that we go about an acquisition today that whole entire thing comes from the first few that we completely screwed up and they took forever and cost us a ton of money so it's like i look at these mistakes the biggest mistakes and they have all led to a piece of the success story that we've had i think the one thing that i do wake up daily and kick myself for is you know we we were and we are so loyal to the kfc business that for a lot of years we never even thought about another business or another brand or any diversification, and that worked really, really well for us until uh, Russia invades Ukraine, which produces twenty-seven percent of the world's grain, and breast meat chicken goes from a dollar thirty-five to three dollars and eighty-five cents. Mm-hmm. Right? Wow. And I think you know while we've learned a lot through that process, and I think on the back end will come out a lot better. There's been some learning in the last couple of years, 20 years later, that by far has had the most impact on me as a leader in this business. The rest of that stuff I sort of saw as the, the script that built the movie.
0: I gotcha. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for this time you've given. It's been terrific.
1: It's always a treat to both reconnect with you and get to do something that you're so passionate about. It's just watching you glow doing this is really cool. So that part's been awesome for me too.
0: Thank you. You have a good one.
1: You too. Franchise U is brought to you by the Yum Center for Global Franchise Excellence at the University of Louisville. For more information on the center, visit business.louisville.edu/yumcgfe. Thank you for listening to Franchise U.